Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. It's my great pleasure to welcome George Bronte into the show. George, welcome. Thank you very much. I've been following George, oh goodness, five, 10 years on LinkedIn and other places because the content at his company, Membrane.com, is so great. And Membrane, if you have not heard of them, is a sales enablement CRM. I love when people who operate businesses and are in the world of sales write books. And George has a new book out I just finished last night, actually, called Stop Killing Deals. So we're going to talk about his advice to help salespeople. I think the subtitle describes it well, which is how to avoid deadly assumptions and achieve sales excellence. So we'll talk about that. Before we talk about the key takeaways from your book, George, I'd love to ask you about one of the favorite sales books that you've ever read and what was one of the key takeaways. Yeah, it's interesting because how do you define a sales book? I think for me, in the role as a salesperson, one of the best books that I read was called Words That Change Minds. It's an NLP book, so it talks about how we use language and how we can listen to words to understand what motivates people. Uh, very fascinating book by Chelly Rose Charvet, and also did a training with her once, and it was super fascinating. So that, that was a really good book that's I guess not specifically in sales, but extremely applicable in sales. Yeah, NLP has taken on different meanings, but the sales world meaning and persuasion meaning is neuro-linguistic programming as opposed to natural language processing. Right, good. Thanks for clarifying that. There are lots of different frameworks that people in NLP uh, have created that I find very useful in sales. And uh, I think from a management perspective, one of the best books out there is Cracking the Sales Management Code by Jason Jordan. Beautiful book. Fantastic framework for really breaking down your KPIs and know how your sales team are doing and who to coach about what and when. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that book that he wrote with Michelle. And the follow-on book, Crushing Quote, I think is equally good. And whenever I talk about sales management books, I got to throw in the Sales Manager Survival Guide, which is uh, academic, but amazing. Yeah, I fully agree. But back on NLP, on neurolinguistic programming, just for a second, it had a strong heyday back in the 80s. And if you Wikipedia NLP, you, you find that there's controversy around it because it does not have the same degree of academic testing, right? They did their own testing, I think, the firm that did it. The one that I think is most controversial is that like, if someone's in a particular mood, right, then you mirror their mood and their body language, and then you begin to try to transform their mood. So an example would be, let's say that they're closed off and have their arms crossed and the scowl on their face, right? That you might assume that same posture and then you gradually relax your body tension and uncross your arms and move from a scowl to a smile. And then that person is supposed to sort of follow you on that trajectory. I'm curious how you react to those kind of more controversial portions of NLP. Yeah, I know that there is a lot of controversy. And some of the people who have promoted NLP have maybe been a bit shady, but mirroring works. We have mirror neurons. We look at other people. We can get a feeling of how they feel just by looking at their body language and how they talk and, and everything. So I definitely think that works. But of course, it doesn't work if you use it to manipulate people. 
that's of course when it breaks down. And and I think that was some of the pushback about some of these models in NLP that they're being used in a manipulative way. And of course, I don't endorse that. But I truly think that there's a lot of really, really strong components and models and theories in NLP that you can have great use of in your life, not just for sales. Yeah, I know from following you, you're not only a big thinker on sales technology, but you also spend a lot of time understanding the psychology beyond NLP. And maybe that's a good segue into how salespeople can help stop killing deals. I know you started the book by throwing out three bad assumptions that people make (laughs) about salespeople and, and their buyers. So maybe let's tackle those three things briefly. The first one is that you'll hear sometimes people say like, that's a natural born salesperson, right? They'll look at the best salesperson in the company, the rainmaker, and say that salesperson was born, not made. Why do you feel that that statement is incorrect? When you look at someone who's really, really a master at something like golf, and look at them when they hit the ball with their swing, it just looks supernatural, right? (laughs) It's like, wow, that's so simple. And then you try to go hit the ball. If you haven't hit the ball before with a golf club, you know how hard it is, right? And I think it's the same with any type of profession, and sales is not really any different. Maybe it's even more complex than many other professions. So when you look at someone who's really good at it, they probably spent a whole career getting to that point. It's not that they were born that way. Although they can have traits that maybe made it easier for them, they've made themselves into that great version of themselves. Yeah, successful people, they find there's often this combination of hard work, good luck, and skill acquisition. There's another model that says the three things that matter are IQ, conscientiousness, and job skills. You can make up for any one of those with any one of the others. So I I think I'm with you on this, that uh, it does take significant investment of time and energy to build a successful salesperson. And and even the ones who go around saying, I was born this way, (laughs) were not necessarily born this way. You find out that maybe their parents were salespeople and they sort of grew up absorbing the lessons that their parents had taught them. So I'm aligned with you on that one. Yeah, there's another aspect to this, which is important to mention, and that not all sales is equal, right? If you're selling a high-value, complex software deal, that's very, very different from selling a used car, right? So the traits and the skills that you need for one selling environment can be very, very different from another sales environment. Or just different stages or phases of the sales process can be different. Like cold calling, getting to that first meeting is one motion that is different from winning a large opportunity or growing an account. So we also have to understand that you need to have different types of skill sets and traits and coaching and tools, depending on what type of sales job you're actually doing. On that note, and you mentioned this in the book, that you'll sometimes see salespeople or often see salespeople who move from one B2B company to another B2B company. It could be, even be very similar. And they were super successful in their prior company, and then they come in and they're not successful in the next. If you're a salesperson and you are moving companies and you were successful in your prior company, what can you do to ensure that you're going to be successful at the next place? that you're not going to be failing to launch after you move? Yeah, that's a good question. You first have to understand why you are being successful in the role you have and uh, who your customers are that you're helping. And if you're moving to another company, are there similarities or is the role very, very different? Are you going to sell uh, to a new type of buyer? That's going to be different. 
you might learn that quickly and you might be able to achieve great success, but it's going to be an uphill battle. It's going to be a bigger challenge if you move to another company who has another target group, maybe another industry. So it's not really rocket science per se, but the complexity of the sale, I would say, really understand that and the terminology and the number of people and the type of people you need to engage with to get to that consensus agreement for the buyer. Yeah, one thing I've noticed is sometimes those rainmakers that come from other places, and they are super expensive people, right? I mean, you have to justify a higher OTE for them, and you justify that with a higher quota, but they become high risk because they may or may not succeed. I found that oftentimes those folks come in with attitude, and that attitude means that when you go into your CRM and you look at their activity, they're not logging activities and you listen to their calls and they are not following the things that the sales and implement team train them to do. Have you also seen that? And what do you do when you get a salesperson who comes in with like that holier than thou attitude? If you're successful in a large blue chip company and you move to a startup or a scale-up company who has a brand that is less well-known, that can be underestimated. Because if you've been at this large company with the brand that everybody wants to get closer to, it can be a lot easier to get those meetings and get people to buy from you. Or if you've been at a company for a long time, so you have a super hot portfolio and you're basically not hunting for new business anymore, but that is your new role, that's going to be tough. And if you, on top of that, have a poor attitude, yeah, that's going to be really, really hard. From a hiring perspective, if you're the manager or the sales director bringing uh, such a person in, it, of course, becomes a cultural problem. They need to know, in our world, in our business, we work like this. This is our way of selling. This is the process we use. This is the shared language uh, we like to use. And we expect you to align with that. Yeah, as a sales operations and strategy person, I almost would rather that person not succeed. If that person who is non-compliant and arrogant succeeds, then it does infect, as you were mentioning, the, the culture of the rest of the sales organization. And then everyone thinks, okay, I don't need to follow the processes either. All this discussion around that lack of discipline in the person actually gets at your second false assumption that salespeople are inherently disciplined. What can organizations do, assuming salespeople are not inherently disciplined, what can they do to help them out? Yeah, what I see a lot is that companies lack a well-thought-through sales process. Put your playbooks onto paper and hopefully into a tool that makes it very transparent and very easy to understand, learn, and follow, and iterate, of course. And just easy stuff like, where do I find the content I need? Where do I find the learning material? Where do I find the white papers, the case studies? You don't have to go look for that in 10 different folders or whatever. So just serve everything up easily and hopefully using some kind of intelligence as well. I would assume your company probably does this, but companies have been trying to like serve the right content at the right time for a number of years. Are we there yet technologically to be able to do that? Or is it really more sort of the salesperson has a good sense of what they need and can just search for what they might feel is the relevant content? Yeah, I think it's a combination. You want the technology to be smart enough to serve up the right content, but you also want it to be very simple for the salesperson to go find whatever they need at the moment. But we expect too much from technology. It's not that complicated. I mean, really, you, if you want to serve up a case study to someone in the SaaS industry of a certain size that's tailored to 
the sales director, if you're using personas, then that content piece should be tagged as such and served up. So, I mean, it shouldn't really be that hard to do technically. I'm with you, and it is a function of, I think, the tagging of that information. Well, let's transition into the third fallacy, which is that buyers and sellers are logical. Why do you feel so strongly that that's one of the key considerations that salespeople inadvertently kill deals? I think that's the funniest one to write about. We have this belief that we are rational, right? So if you can just prove to someone that your product is great, they will buy from you. If it was that easy, selling would be easy, but it's not, right? So we really have to understand how people think, what motivates them, at which levels. And uh, in complex B2B sales, it gets really exciting because you have multiple stakeholders involved. And then their interactions and sometimes political sort of motivators can play a role. So I think there is a lot to be learned about how buyers think, what motivates them. And then when we're talking about that, you have to have all the business acumen, which I think sales teams and maybe sales leaders sort of skip or assume that just showing the product or the numbers without having a business discussion first would sort of fly and it's not enough. I think business acumen is one of those terms that is very broad. If you're a salesperson and someone tells you, hey, to be a better seller, you need to improve your business acumen, how would you actually take that advice? Yeah, it is broad. You have to understand how businesses work. You have income, you sell something, you you get an income, and you have costs to produce that. And then you have costs for staff and office space and computers and software and all the other stuff. At the end of that, you hopefully make a profit. Understanding just how businesses work and how to talk about that in the context of what your buyers are trying to achieve. So understanding where they are, their business, their industry, read their financial reports to understand where they're going and how you can align. But you really need to be able to talk money, profits, costs, investments. And it's a fluffy and and broad topic. And that's why it takes time to learn. I'm with you on, you have to understand how your prospects and your customers actually make money and spend money. When the economy is good, most people are making decisions on how to make more money, right? And right now, as we're shifting into a almost unprecedentedly slower economy, there's a lot of people who are actually now thinking about how to save money. And, you know, there are different ways to still sell in that environment with consolidation plays or other, you know, shifting vendors and so on. So there's still ways to sell even in that environment. And would you advise salespeople to take an accounting class or to read an accounting book? Is that a good use of their time? It depends on who they are, what role they have. But uh, in general, I would say yes. And it depends also who are you talking to, right? If you're going to be talking to C-level people, you definitely need to know a lot about business in general, uh, including finance. Because everything that you're selling should have a business benefit, a business value to them. And if you can't formulate that, if you can't express that, explain that to them, you're going to hit a glass ceiling at some point. Yeah. In order to have conversations with more senior executives, you need to be able to talk right in terms of ROI. And a lot of people, you know, listeners and salespeople sell products where the ROI is really, really hard to quantify. By way of example, I mean, I worked for an information services company for almost 20 years. We were always in pursuit of quantifying hard dollar either savings or profit. And it was extremely elusive because it was just the nature of the information services 
business because it's just one input into decision making. What advice do you give people who work in you know selling these products where it's it's hard to tie revenue directly to uh, to profitability? Should you create an ROI model anyway? Yeah, it's a good question. And ROI, you're thinking about a monetized version of that. You can also look at it from just the value that you can create. So it could be that your offering makes something easier for them. Like in your case, it sounded like they could make decisions easier if they had access to that information in a better way. I remember we sold IT automation back in the day in another company of mine. And one of the big benefits of that was the tech people got a much better life. (laughs) I mean, they could reduce their work hours because they did a lot of work outside of office hours that they didn't really get paid for. And they hated that type of work. So for them, that was a huge upside. But it might have been hard to put that on paper. But then you had to twist that around to say to the leaders that if you don't do anything about this, your best tech people will leave. How much would that cost you? You can create an ROI on the cost of inactivity. I love your ROI on reducing effort and making people's lives better. People are, are familiar, obviously, with the Challenger Sale book, but the principals at uh, Corporate Executive Board wrote another great book called The Effortless Experience quite a while back. One of their key findings was that almost above all else, the key to successful business is just to make everything in your sales process as effortless as possible for your customer. Obviously, you want them to commit to doing things and you shouldn't move stages forward in your sales process without actual customer commitment and action, but to the extent that you can make those particular commitments uh, as effortless as possible. I think that's a winning strategy. But we've gone through those three false assumptions about how salespeople can kill deals. Again, that this false assumption that salespeople are born, not made that salespeople are disciplined and that at buyers and sellers are logical. So we kind of set up the keys of kind of where the false assumptions were. What are some of the cures to help people be more successful? Yeah, I think we have to realize that selling is, is really about people and humans, right? Um, buyers are human, uh, sellers are human, and uh, we all want to do better, <laughs> right? In whatever we're doing, we're trying to improve the business we're in, our lives, etc. So One of my favorite words is alignment. And I think that is very important in sales. Like, how do you really align with the ambitions of your salespeople are so you can help them, coach them to grow? And for salespeople, how do you align with your buyers and really understand where they are going? How can you be a part of that journey? So um, realize that these assumptions are scary and dangerous, especially if you're hiring people based on these sort of assumptions that salespeople should know what they've done and that they should just log whatever they do in the CRM. That's not sufficient. You're working with people and it's a profession uh, and you have to help people grow in that profession. Yeah. One of the things you talked about as a blocker for salespeople is their own self-image and how that affects sales. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, and that that's, ties back to this belief that salespeople are in a particular way. Like salespeople are competitive, salespeople are talkative and extroverts, and all these things that people sort of believe that good salespeople have are simply not true, right? You can be an introvert and be a fantastic salesperson. But if you believe I'm not a natural-born salesperson because I don't have these traits that I believe naturally-born salespeople should have, then that's limiting your your potential. So you have to sort of realize what your inner thoughts about selling are 
and then try to work on those and maybe change a few. You talked about salespeople are competitive. Salespeople are extroverted. We had a sales leader who loved this interview question. He would ask people, do you love to win or do you hate to lose? And this sales leader had a particular opinion about which one was the right answer. I was very skeptical and I'm very data-driven. So I identified, like stack ranked our sales force and then sent out a survey and I asked them the question, do you love to win or hate to lose? And it turned out that the performance of the people who love to win on average and the performance of the people who hate to lose was statistically equal, that there was actually no difference. That question is not predictive of sales performance. And yet we do this to ourselves, right? That we think that salespeople need to be this or need to be that. And I agree with you. I think particularly in B2B complex selling, which is the focus of a lot of the work you've done, is largely the focus of the book. There, I definitely see plenty of people who are more collaborative than they are competitive, right? And they are often more introverted than extroverted, but I, even there, I don't actually think it matters whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. I'd love to do that study as well as like do a personality test and figure it out. Well, you said it's all about people. So I guess given what you do and that you come from a tech background, a little surprising that you know it's not about technology. Why is solving the people problems more important than solving the technology problems? Yeah, I think you have to do that in, in the right order. Uh, you have to first realize that the people are key. And then you have to realize how you go to market, who your customers are, what the values are that you can provide to them, what strategy you need to have and the process and and the methodologies and coaching and all that good stuff. And technology comes in last on that list. But a lot of companies I see out there start with technology first because they see it as some kind of shortcut, I guess. And a lot of these companies promote that they are completely automated and they're AI here and AI there. And you don't even have to sell if you buy these tools, but that's simply not true in a complex B2B sales environment. Uh, So I think you have to realize that and buy technology last. Yeah, strategy in the general context is all about people, process, and technology. So I'd like to you highlight all three elements. As I was reading the book, your most provocative statement in the book is complex sales is the wrong place for AI-powered automation. You sort of drop that bomb at a time when people are incredibly focused on the application of artificial intelligence and machine learning into sales, inclusive of complex sales. Yeah, and what I mean about that is that I think people have too high expectations of AI. We want the computers to sort of look at the data that we have and magically do stuff for us. In the best of worlds, replace all the salespeople because that would be a lot cheaper. But if you're in a complex B2B sales environment where you close maybe 10 deals a year, First off, the amount of data that you will have about those clients and about the opportunities you're working is not going to be big data. Right? It's, it's more small data. <laughs> uh, so, And, and the, the format you have that data in is not going to be very structured. So it's also going to be very difficult for AI to really help you out there. But I do like the idea of crunching numbers and doing all that stuff that computers are great at and augmenting the intelligence of the salespeople. So I'm all for using technology to help salespeople. But I think there is a belief out there that AI can somehow do the job of the salespeople. I think marketing automation and all that, when that came, 
uh, had that promise as well. Like, we don't have to sell any, any longer. We can just put up a blog and white papers and stuff, <laughs> and people will come to our doorstep and just buy from us. Fire the salespeople. And then people f- uh, figured out, like, oh, wow, that, that's not really how it works. People may find us now, but it's not like they're going to buy from us unless we actually sell them something and get into their world. So, yeah, I just I'm just a bit, um, as you can hear, <laughs> uh, upset about the promise of AI in this space. I actually, in this case, I quite agree with you. And I like your perspective that we should interpret AI not as artificial intelligence, but what we should strive for is augmented intelligence. I commented on someone else's post on LinkedIn recently, and they were talking about, yeah, the, the promise of prospecting, for example, using AI. And my response was, humans, at whatever state technology is at, prospects are able to detect when it's not authentic, when it's not genuine, when it's not real. So if you go back, I don't know, five, 10 years in the early days of marketing automation, the first few emails that got sent where someone said, put the person's first name in the subject line, that was novel. And no one assumed that a computer could do that. And those probably got great response rates. And then as people realized that that was a standard dynamic tag marketing automation trick, right? It didn't work anymore. And, and if you go a step further in personalization to, to put things that machines can't do, people detect that and they're much more likely to respond if you go to that next level. And as you push further and further into machine personalization, humans will react by being able to detect those further advancements. Yeah. And, and, and there's a metaphor that I sometimes use of a relay race. We talk about marketing automation, prospecting, opportunity management, account planning, and all that. And and it's really like a relay race, right? If you're really good at marketing, and then you hand over the baton to your prospecting people, and they drop it because they're not good enough, can't have a good conversation with a client, then it doesn't matter. All your work in the great marketing automation you did doesn't really help. And likewise, if your SDRs are doing a great job in prospecting, and they hand over the baton to the BDRs, the people driving the opportunities, and they fail, then we've also failed. So we have to be able to run the entire relay race uh, in a successful way. Yeah, completely agree. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed the advice in Stop Killing Deals. I know having written books myself, is there something that after you went to print, you realized, oh, you know what? I really should have included that one little tidbit. I've had people ask me that question. I haven't come up with anything yet. But I guess the AI comment you said, that will come to haunt me in a few years, I'm sure, when AI has become much, much better. But uh, right now, that's how I felt. So I put it in there. I think you also framed it in the book appropriately as like, at this moment, it is not a deal accelerator, especially in complex B2B sales. And I think that's a very accurate statement. Well, as I mentioned, I've been following you for years. So if other people do want to follow you, learn more about you, find the book, learn about membrane.com, what, what are the best ways to do that? Yeah, so the book has a very cool website. It's stop.killing.deals. Wow, okay, cool. <laughs> and uh, I'm on LinkedIn, so just search for my name there and connect with me. I would be happy to connect. And the blog is on membrane.com slash blog. I don't often advise people to to read blogs unless they're really wickedly good, and that blog is a must-read. Well, George, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. Paige McCauley is our producer. Peter Lepinto is our editor. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.